You see, the person and worth of Jesus is so utterly glorious, his words and works so matchlessly unique, that this is what we want people to wrestle with. For them to give him a hearing and learn what he did and make a right estimation of him in light of that. So that is the point of this message. Because Jesus is so unique, matchless, glorious, holy, we ought to challenge others to judge him rightly. Now, that might sound like a somewhat bizarre statement. I am commending y'all to tell others to judge Jesus? No, that's not what I said. Everyone already judges Jesus. They already make a determination about whether they think he's Lord or not. The challenge is to judge Jesus rightly. It's not me who came up with this idea, nor is it Nicodemus who came up with the idea, even though he said it, Jesus is the one who gives this command. You might remember where we left off at verse 22 last week. We were in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and a group of Jews at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day-long celebration that took place in Jerusalem. It was one of Israel's most important feasts, commemorating the Lord's provision of both food and water for the Israelites during their wandering in the wilderness. So about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and started teaching. And the crowd marveled at what he said. And so during that, Jesus asked them why they were seeking to kill him. To which they, they responded incredulously, you have a demon who's trying to kill you. This is Jesus' answer, beginning in verse 21. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may, be not, may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Did you catch that last sentence? Judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances. Jesus literally commands the crowd to judge him. But, 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 wait a minute. We all know the verse that is perhaps the most quoted Bible verse in the entire world, throughout the history of the world. What is it? Judge not lest ye be judged. Aren't we then not supposed to judge? Well, that depends on what Jesus meant by judge there and what he meant by judge here. He was speaking in Matthew about judging self-righteously or hypocritically. He goes on to say, You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is there talking about judging wrongly judging by unbiblical standards. There are right ways of judging and wrong ways of judging, which is exactly what Jesus is saying here. You see, the people are not marveling at him. He says, you marvel at me. They're not marveling at him because he healed the lame man. They're not going, whoa, that was so cool. 
They're judging him negatively. They're marveling negatively at him. They're astonished at how wrong it was for Jesus to heal a man because it was the Sabbath. They want him put to death because they think he broke the Sabbath. They're wrongly judging him and his actions. And so Jesus points out the hypocrisy of their judgment by pointing out that they do work on the Sabbath every time that they circumcise someone on that day. That is, they supersede their Sabbath tradition with another tradition that they obviously deem to be a higher priority. Now, you can almost hear them begin to justify why it's proper for them to circumcise on the Sabbath, right? But, 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 but. It's not a, that's not a violation of the Sabbath. But that's not the point. The point is that they're looking at appearances, not at the heart of the issue. They're misjudging. They're not concerned with right judgment, but with what looks good. They didn't want to take the time to look at the spirit of the law, but only at the letter of the law. They wanted black and white so that they could simply judge Jesus and others by mere outward appearance and not by what is actually righteous and unrighteous. They were judging Jesus with superficial motives according to superficial standards based on superficial knowledge. And so Jesus says, do not judge by appearances. Don't judge superficially, but judge with the right judgment. Rather than judging with superficial motives according to superficial standards based on superficial knowledge, a right judgment is judging with right motives according to right standards based on right knowledge. Pretty simple, right? These are the conditions that form the foundation of right judgment then. Right motives, right standards, and right knowledge. Let's look at each of these. First, we should challenge people to judge Jesus with right motives. Now, this seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? But this is, of course, the most difficult of three conditions. Most people like to portray themselves like they're a disinterested third party who's simply looking at the facts and judging impartially. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, look at the different responses of the people in this passage. They wanted to kill Jesus for healing a lame man. Three different times, they wanted Jesus arrested. Then there was the reaction of the Pharisees to the temple officers. Have you also been deceived? Verse 49, they call the crowd a bunch of ignoramuses. doesn't say that in English, but that's the exact word in the Greek. And then there's the response to Nicodemus' challenge to first look at Jesus' words and actions before judging. Look at verse 52. They replied to what Nicodemus said, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now don't miss this. They're responding to another Pharisee, one of their own, who is appealing to their law, their own, their law. 
He simply suggests they apply a a lawful use of their law to look at the evidence. And their response is twofold. First, they engage in a personal attack, essentially slandering Nicodemus for even recommending such a thing. But then they say, under the pretense of wanting to look like they've already examined the evidence, see for yourself that no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, there's a problem with that. There were a lot of prophets that came from Galilee, specifically Jonah and Nahum. So these guys, these experts in the Scriptures, are willing to lie about the Scriptures and unlawfully use the law in order to condemn Jesus. Does that sound like they had right motives? This is why Jesus had said earlier, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Their will was not to do God's will, but their own. They didn't seek God's glory, but their own glory. They were anything but genuinely judging. They didn't have right motivations Unbelievers don't have right motivations. Scripture's clear on this. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. All mankind are by nature children of wrath. The unbeliever almost always wants to portray themselves, appearances, see that whole appearance thing? They want to portray themselves as a just and unbiased judge rationally and emotionally dealing with all of the facts. But they're not. It's merely appearance, superficial justification. No one is unbiased. Everyone has an agenda. As Jesus said here, either they want to do God's will or they don't. If they don't want to do God's will, then they won't judge him rightly. The person who rejects the words of God in Christ, don't reject them because they're not logically sound or valid. But they would like to appear that way, that they're rejecting them because they're not sound or valid. They like the appearance of neutrality and rationality, but it's superficial. Unbelief is never logical, but it's always psychological. Unbelief is never logical, but psychological. Just the other day, I was having a conversation with someone attending a logic class at a local college. Some of the students were given the assignment to logically defend the existence of God, no matter what they believed. Another part of the class was given the task of proving that God doesn't exist, regardless of what they believed. Huh. I got to thinking about how I would attempt to logically prove that God doesn't exist. The person I was talking to asked me what I would have said if I were on that second group of people. I told him that the best argument I can think of was the argument from the existence of evil, but that it's not a logical argument, but it's a psychological one. He asked me what I meant. I said, the problem with the argument 
is that in order for there to be a standard of good and evil, one must presume that God exists. If God doesn't exist, then good and evil are simply human conventions. Feelings put to words. So in order to argue against God's existence, I must first presume God's existence in order to argue against it. Argument dead. Therefore, the argument from evil is not logical, but it's psychological. We hate the fact that some evil exists. We like other evils. And we question God's goodness for allowing it to continue. In other words, we don't like it. Psychological. All unbelief is ultimately psychological. People either want to do God's will or they don't. And if they don't, then they'll make up any excuse in order not to believe in Christ. It's ABC. Anything but Christ. So I want to make sure that we understand what right motivation is. It's not being unbiased or attempting to be neutral. That is not, I repeat, not a right motivation. Right motivation, according to Jesus, is the motivation to do God's will. If someone does not want to do his will, then they simply will not be able to judge rightly or fairly. So let this be a lesson for us who are doing the challenging as well. The society in which we live elevates the idea of neutrality and tells us Christians that we must give up our belief in the Bible and unbiasedly look at the evidence. In other words, forsake God, forsake His Word, forsake His truth, and join me to look at the evidence. No. We are not unbiased. We worship Christ. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our God. We don't dare look unbiasedly. We look through Him because He is truth. He is righteousness. This must be our motivation to do God's will. Number two, we should challenge people to judge Jesus with right standards. Several years ago, we had some friends who had moved um, from here to a small town in Kansas I remember my friend telling me the story of the first time that he had gone to work to a business that was uh, quite a few miles outside of that little town in Kansas. Having lived in Colorado Springs for many years, he was used to going about seven miles an hour over the speed limit whenever you're on the highway or freeway. Anybody go, yeah? Well, he assumed that that was the standard everywhere. So he headed to work that morning and was going seven miles over to the speed limit and was pulled over and got a very expensive ticket and was late to work, to boot. He was making judgments based upon wrong standards. Something else that's required for someone to judge rightly is a right standard of judgment. That is, how do we determine what is true as, as opposed to what is not? There must be a standard of truth, a standard by which 
a ju- to judge the rightness of something. And there is only one standard of right judgment. God's word. There is only one standard of right judgment. God's word. And it's the standard that's referred to multiple times in this passage. Verses 40 to 42, the crowd appeals to the scriptures. In verse 22, 37, 38, Jesus appeals to the scriptures. Verse 51, Nicodemus appeals to the scriptures. Verse 52, the Pharisees appeal to the scriptures. God's word is the ultimate standard of truth. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The psalmist said, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And I love that verse because of the synonymous statement of truth and righteous or righteousness, which is precisely what Jesus is getting at here. They're actually his words. Jesus literally says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Judging truth isn't merely a determination of what is actual versus what is not, but is also moral in nature. All judgments are not merely factual judgments, but are also moral judgments, righteous versus unrighteous. And the standard of all righteous judgment is God's word. Wherever the Bible speaks, it stands as the measuring line by which everything else is to be judged. This is because God in Christ is the essence and fount of all righteousness. He is innately, absolutely, unchangeably, eternally righteous. Righteousness does not define God. God defines righteousness. God is righteous. In order to know what righteousness is, we must look at the character, the nature, the actions, and the words of God himself. And since righteousness is defined by and derives from his nature, what he says and commands is, therefore, righteous. So, God's word is the righteous standard by which all things must be judged. So, whenever or wherever a person's standards are at variance with the standards of God's word, it is at those very places and in those very instances that their judgment is wrong. There is no other standard by which to judge. When conversing with an unbeliever, we must always recognize this. The standard by which to judge Jesus is not found in their standards of what they think is true. This is because their standards are merely subjective feelings and opinions, not objective, absolute standards of righteousness. Their standards are created instead of eternal, changing rather than immutable, fallible instead of infallible. In other words, their standards are ultimately superficial. There's only one set of absolute, eternal, immutable, and infallible standards of righteousness, which are the written record of the absolute, eternal, immutable, and infallible God, His Word. And so, when we discuss the truth of Christ with others, we must stand on this standard of truth. Don't go appealing to their fallible standards, because if you do, 
you've already lost the argument by capitulating to their standards, which are not righteous. You've lost the discussion if you've accepted their standard of truth rather than God's standard of truth, their standard of righteousness rather than God's standard of righteousness. Be a faithful witness to God by actually believing and standing upon his word when dialoguing with unbelievers. But as I've already said, it seems like everyone in the story already believed this. So how does that work? Because a lot of them, well, they're still judging Jesus wrongly. Obviously, it's not just any old reading or understanding of God's word that produces right judgment. If only it were that easy to get an amen to that one. Mm -hmm. But it isn't because people often come to the word in unbelief. This is why the first condition I listed was right motives. See how that works? Those with wrong motives can easily distort the Word of God and misuse it to their benefit, to their advantage, to their evil and wicked purposes. They can do this in two ways, through superficial reading of God's Word or a superficial application of it. We see both of these happening in the passage. We see several of the Jews accusing Jesus of violating the Sabbath based on a superficial reading of what the Sabbath was for. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was instituted for humans to be able to rest, for their bodies to be restored. So what does that mean when Jesus heals someone? Isn't that the essence of the Sabbath? Yes, that's the absolute essence. Oh. But they were not concerned with a true understanding of God's Word, but were content with a superficial understanding of it. And because of their superficial misunderstanding, they were able to superficially apply it to justify their rejection and arrest of Jesus on quote-unquote violating God's Word. This is why Nicodemus appealed to a right reading and application of the Scriptures in verse 51. How often do we find, do unbelievers reject the truth of the Scriptures or of Jesus because they've simply looked on the surface? They don't care to look beneath the surface. They merely read or hear something from someone else and choose to believe them rather than trying to understand the Scriptures. They reject Christ and Christianity based upon a superficial reading or understanding of Jesus. Others claim that the Bible is filled with contradictions and yet never spend the time to actually examine whether they're really there. They judge on mere appearance, failing to either read the text carefully or in context. The truth is, they're not interested in doing God's will and are looking for a reason to not believe. They then attempt to justify their unbelief through, through a superficial examination of the Bible and of Christ. 
We need to recognize this and challenge people to judge Jesus not based on their superficial standards, their superficial understandings, but to truly, genuinely seek to understand the Word of God and to judge Jesus based upon it. Number three, we should challenge people to judge Jesus with right knowledge. Several years ago, I heard the story of this woman who was flying from Denver to Richmond. She had a layover in Atlanta and was getting a little hungry. So she stopped by one of those little Hudson News stores in the the airport and and bought a little travel pack, box of cookies and and a soda and a magazine. She then sat down under a gate and began perusing the articles in the magazine. Before long, she noticed the sound of plastic rustling beside her. She glanced over next to her to see a man opening the cookies and then taking the top cookie out of the package and eating it. She was in disbelief. This fellow couldn't really be eating her cookies, could he? But there he was, eating a cookie and smiling at her as he did it. She wasn't quite sure what to do, so she reached over and grabbed a cookie out of the package and began chomping on it. The fellow next to her smiled nicely and then reached into the package for a second cookie. (laughs) The nerve! She was beside herself, so she quickly snatched another cookie from the package and chomped on it, half snarling at this thief beside her. The gentleman smiled politely back. Words rattled around in her head about telling this guy how rude he was when he reached for another cookie. Unbelievable! Her face turned red with anger. She grabbed another cookie from the package, furious at the audacity of this fellow next to her. Well, after she had finished her cookie, she looked down and saw that there was only one cookie left. (laughs) Now what's he going to do? Should she reach out and grab it before he did? Hmm. Well, as she was thinking about it, the unthinkable happened. He reached out and grabbed the cookie. He smiled at her, broke the cookie in half, and handed her half the cookie. Ah! She's apoplectic at this point. She grabbed a cookie from his hand, threw it in her mouth, and lifted her magazine in front of her, trembling with rage. Just then, the gate attendant called for the passengers to start boarding. The man got up and moved toward the gate. She calmed herself. From her outrage, enough to stand up and start throwing her items together to board the plane. She then opened her purse to grab her ticket, and there, in the top of her purse, lay her unopened package of cookies. Have you ever judged someone based upon incomplete or superficial knowledge? The final condition for judging rightly is knowing what what Jesus actually said and did. That is, having an accurate picture of his words and his work so that one can make a judgment based on reality rather than perception. The truth is contained in Nicodemus's words, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? This passage is filled with wrong or superficial judgments about Jesus and what he said. Some people didn't believe in Jesus because they thought they knew where he was from. But their understanding was superficial. And so Jesus responded 
you know me and, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. In essence, Jesus says that they only think they know where he comes from. Yes, from all appearances, he comes from the region of Galilee. But once again, they're looking at mere appearances. In reality, they didn't know where he came from, or else they would have recognized that he had come from the Father in heaven. And why didn't they recognize this? Well, as Jesus says, and him you do not know. Mm. Talk about a devastatingly humbling statement. If there is one thing those in the temple prided themselves on, it's that they knew God. But that was Jesus' point, wasn't it? They didn't know the Father, and so they couldn't know where Jesus came from, nor what his true purpose was. They think this is all about the things that they can see, about appearances. They're mistaken. Later we're told that some rejected Jesus as the Christ because the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was born. <laughs> now, there's a tremendous amount of irony in that statement, isn't there? As John records it, <laughs> I think he was probably snickering. Well, he knew that those very things were true, that Jesus was indeed the offspring of David, that he was born in Bethlehem. But those who knew that they knew where Jesus was from did not indeed know. They made their judgment about him based upon superficial, incomplete, or even wrong information. Others made wrong judgments based on superficial understandings of what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. <laughs> the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They just don't get it, do they? That's what this entire series should have been called. You just don't get it, do you? Their hearing was superficial. Jesus is predicting his death. But just as they didn't understand where he came from, neither could they understand where he was going. Unbelievers make all kinds of judgments about Jesus. They make judgments by mere appearances failing to seek the truth underneath the surface. This is because they don't want to recognize him for who he is. They don't want to make the effort of understanding his words or his actions because when they do, they'll be faced with decisions that they don't want to have to make. And so they judge from afar by mere appearance. Still others reject the Bible or Christ because they've been hurt by people within the church. 
They've genuinely been harmed by the words or actions of those who profess Christ. By those like the Pharisees who mishandled the word for their own advantage. And so they reject Jesus based upon the actions of those who claim to follow him. That's once again judging by mere appearance. They're judging the sinless Jesus based upon the actions of his sinful followers. They're not truly looking at him, but simply stop at the appearance of the church. Now, does this then relieve us of the responsibility of living godly lives? Everybody say, no. Of course not. Our rationale for godly, for living godly lives and rightly representing Christ to unbelievers is not ultimately about unbelievers. What is it about? Doing God's will because we love Him. Is your desire to do God's will? Yes, why? Because I love Him. He saved me. That's why we live godly lives. Now, there's actually a positive example in this passage concerning a right understanding of Jesus' words and actions. We're told, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And then we're told that the officers responded to these words as well by saying, no one ever spoke like this man. So what in the world did Jesus say or do that would elicit such a response from these officers and many in the crowd? What was it that was so utterly unique that they were dumbfounded and were willing to go back to the Pharisees knowing that they, they were going to get lambasted. Well, to understand it, we need to look beneath the surface. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a golden jug was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in this grand procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar were sounded. While the people watched, the priests processed around the altar with the jug, the temple choir singing the Hallel. When the choir reached Psalm 118, every male shook a palm branch in his right hand, while in his left hand he raised a piece of citrus fruit, and all cried, Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. The water was then offered to God along with the daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out on the altar before the Lord. This symbolized both the Lord's salvation through the provision of water in the wilderness. Remember when Moses struck the rock to satisfy the people's thirst? and the future inauguration of the Messianic age when a stream of water would flow over all the earth. 
amidst this sacred ritual. In a moment of silence, as the priest poured the water and the wine over the altar in sacrifice before the Lord, Jesus stood up and piercing the air shouted, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Then he dropped the mic. You talk about a mind-blowing moment. Jesus' words here were the invitation from Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Those are the words of the Lord. In that moment, he is indicating that he is the embodiment of the Lord's salvation. The rock struck in the wilderness to satisfy the thirst of God's people. When he was struck on the altar of the cross, blood and water flowed just as the water and wine flowed over this altar before the Lord. And not only is the fulfillment of this past symbolism which look forward to the Messiah, but it is also one from whom the cleansing stream of God would flow over the whole earth. All who come to him from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth will be washed neath the cleansing flow of his blood. He is the water of God's salvation to all who come to him. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 55. He is the rock of Horeb. He is the living water. He is the Messiah. And the invitation here isn't just to the religious elite. It's to anyone who is thirsty. It's to chief priests and to temple officers as well. It's not just to an invitation to the pious, but to every common person in the crowd, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. Anyone who is thirsty can have this living water, God's water of salvation in Jesus. And he is also the one who would send the Spirit to those who are cleansed so that they would have rivers of living water flowing through them to the nations. In this moment, pregnant with meaning, Jesus invites the people gathered in Jerusalem to come to him for salvation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. He is unique. He is unparalleled. He is matchless. People simply need to see Jesus clearly. We don't need to be need these persuasive arguments, but simply need to present the person and work of Jesus Christ. No one ever spoke like this man. No one was ever like this man who was God, is God in the flesh. No one ever gave their life but him to God as a sacrifice to make a people for God. Solus Christus, Christ alone. That is our cry. That is our creed. That is our hope. A short while ago, I was talking with someone who's undergoing a crisis of faith. 
They're questioning the truths of the Bible, the existence of evil, the hypocrisy of the church. I could have spent hours attempting to answer all of their questions. But in the end, I simply said, I think you need to look at Jesus. Examine his life, what he did and said, and how he interacted with the world around him. The answers to all of your questions and doubts can only be found in him. If I can get the worship team to come up. This is truly the ultimate challenge. We want people to come face to face with Jesus in the scriptures, to genuinely encounter his person and work through its pages. If they are thirsty for the truth, then it is, the, it, it is only there, only in seeing Jesus as he truly is that they will find living water to quench their soul. Challenge them with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have not left us without it, that you have shown us Jesus and made telling others really that simple. Here's Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's here. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he is to us. He's so much more. We give you praise and we give you thanks, Lord. We pray for the many unbelievers that each of us knows in this room. We pray, God, that you would reveal to them a true picture of Jesus Christ. That you would Give them a heart. Give them right motivation. Give them thirst so that they will seek Jesus. Lord, do a mighty work. It takes a miracle that only you can perform. Bring our loved ones, our co-workers, our acquaintances to Christ. Please, Lord. We plead with you. Do that work. In Jesus' name, amen.